You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. We're going to get into some real stuff today. Are you ready for some real talk? You asked for it. It's really important to me that our faith in Jesus makes sense in our real lives. And sometimes we can kind of experience this phenomenon where you go to a church service and you sing songs and you hear a message, hopefully a good one, and it kind of, kind of pumps you up for a few hours and then you get home and it begins to wear off and then Monday morning rolls around and you're dealing with the same problems that you were dealing with last week and you kind of go through this cycle and you barely maybe even scrape by to the next church service that you can come to. But in our lives, our following Jesus is meant to be a day in, day out journey with God. And it's very, very important to me that when we talk about faith, we don't really idealize things, but we talk about the reality of the difficulties of life. And uh, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the opposition that we experience when we set out to do something for God. And this applies even to the work that God wants to do in you. Maybe you're just beginning your faith journey and uh, maybe you're taking those first steps. We're in the book of Nehemiah in this teaching series, Rebuild the Ruins. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open to Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to be covering most of Nehemiah chapter 4 today. We'll be there in just a few moments. Uh, but today's message, uh, more than others, really comes right off the heels of where we were in the story last week. And uh, last week I shared eight steps to get to work, eight steps to do the work that God is calling you to do. And if we're not careful, we might tend to think of these eight steps as like eight steps to success or something like that. I want to show you a chart, Okay. So these are the eight things we talked about last week. Nehemiah encounters a problem, and the walls in Jerusalem are still torn down, you know, generations later, uh, after the Babylonian exile. And then Nehemiah, the very first thing he does, what does he do very first? He prays. He always prays first, and then he gets an opportunity, and he demonstrates courage, and then God blesses the effort, and then, you know, he prepares. He doesn't just jump the gun. He also prepares, but then he knows, I can't do this alone. He collaborates, and then by the end of last week, we got to the point where he's finally getting to work, and if we're not careful, we can hear those as like, just follow those steps, and everything's going to be easy. Like, it's, you know, always going to be like in a business model up and to the right, I want to show you a chart that more accurately reflects what the work God has for us. You start going, you got the major problem, and you start working on that problem, and then you encounter another problem, and then you're like, ah, oh, you get discouraged, and you pray, and you, you know, and, and then you get another problem, and then even before you get to the other problem, you see there's like another little down problem, I kind of try to, and there's all these problems, and it's a very, very important thing for us to talk about how can we persevere when we experience opposition, resistance, and hostility, especially when those things come in our faith? We call God a way maker, but that's not to be confused with the way that God asks us to go being this really easy path. In fact, one of the greatest stories of God making a way is when the Israelites were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And did God make a way? He did, but they were sweating a little bit. 
right? They were trapped by an enemy army and, and, and a sea, and God did. He, he parted the Red Sea, and he made a way, and that's an amazing thing. But what it means for God to be a way maker is that he makes a way when there doesn't seem to be a way forward. And yet we can find ourselves in those places in our faith. So every good story has conflict, and that's one of the things that makes the story of Nehemiah so compelling. As, as we're going to see today, he experiences a ton of conflict. Like I said, I cut a bunch of content out of today's sermon, so here's what I want to do. I want to look at five problems, if you're a note taker, five problems that Nehemiah faces. In my original outline, I had 11 problems. <laughs> so if you wish that today's sermon was twice as long as it is, just think about that. Uh, Five problems that he faces, how he responds to those problems, and what we can learn from him in how we find these problems as well. We're going to start off actually in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. We looked at this last week, but this is a bit of foreshadowing. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The most basic problem that you will experience the moment that God starts to move either in your life or through your life is people will become unhappy. It displeased them greatly. And if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you give your life to Christ, there's going to be friends, maybe even family members that are antagonistic towards that because you've changed. Biblically speaking, you're a new creation. You've left the old person behind, and a new person has replaced uh, that person in Christ. And so there's going to be people who are displeased when God starts to do work in you, and then when God starts to do work through you, and you're saying yes to the good works that God calls you to, that's also going to make certain people unhappy. And I, I hesitate to even call this a problem, because I would just say, like, expect unhappiness from people. And there's certain people who maybe your personality type or your disposition makes it especially difficult when somebody isn't happy. You kind of have the, feel this need you know, to keep people happy and, and to be a peacekeeper and that sort of thing. And I, I just want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that comes from a really good place, a healthy place that God has made you like you empathize with people. You can really sit in someone else's shoes really easily. You got to be careful with that when you make it your goal to please people because often pleasing people finds itself at odds with pleasing God. And I'll just tell, tell you about me and my personality type. Maybe you've learned it about me. I don't have the, that gift. <laughs> it's one of the greatest blessings and curses as a leader is that I, I not that I don't care. I don't want to come across like cold or mean, but and it, it served me really well over the years. We'll get into some of that, uh, some of that today. But the reality is good leaders understand it's totally unrealistic to keep everyone happy at all times. In fact, what ends up happening, if you try to make that your goal, is you end up doing nothing significant. If you want to keep the status quo and you want to keep everyone happy, then just don't do anything different. And good leaders understand you have to make decisions not based on what will make the least amount of people unhappy, but what decision will actually be best. And we understand this in parenting, don't we? A job of a good parent is not to keep your kids happy. A job of a good parent is to make the best decisions that will help your kids flourish. For example, my kids don't always like brushing their teeth. And so as a good parent, my goal is not, well, if it makes you unhappy to brush your teeth, don't worry about it. Right? I've, I've got to actually like teach them how to, how to do it anyways. A lot of kids don't like wearing pants all the time. So you figure out what the best thing to do in that situation is. 
You go into a public place, it's like, no. Like, and they might fuss and they might cry, but at the end of the day, the job of someone who is in a leadership position is to make a decision, even if it's going to create waves, even if it's going to cause some people to be, quote-unquote, displeased. And uh, Jesus actually promises this for his followers. In John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, not even if the world is unhappy with you, but if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, this isn't permission to be a jerk or to be you know, unnecessarily mean to people or offensive to people, but it's just to set your expectations appropriately, that if you're following Jesus faithfully, some people will be unhappy about it. They should respond to you the same way that they would respond to Jesus. A.W. Tozer says it like this, too often not wanting to offend anyone, we end up reaching no one. And, And I think that one of the greatest fears that people have with personal evangelism, with actually sharing your faith, your testimony with someone else, is the fear of rejection. And I've talked about this before uh, to our church, is that's not necessarily something I want to teach you how to figure out a way around that fear of rejection. I want to help you learn how to embrace it and get over it. Because it's not an if, it's a you will, it's a when. You will be rejected if you live out your faith in the world. And so how does Nehemiah deal with the unhappiness? He hears these rumors in chapter 2. Oh, Sanballat, Tobiah, they're unhappy about it. How does he deal with it? He basically ignores it. He doesn't address it whatsoever, and he continues to move forward with his plans to return to, to go to Jerusalem and to build the wall. But in chapter 4, things start to heat up. Chapter 3 records Nehemiah has begun the work, and he's positioned this family to build this part of the wall, and this family to build this part of the wall. So the the rebuilding of the wall has already started by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And here's some ancient trash talk for you, okay? And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? And will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite, think about his, like, his little side, sidekick here, was beside him, and he joined in, and this is what he said. Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It's like, is that the best you got for your trash talk? Got some teenagers that could teach those guys a lesson. And, and the second problem, though, that they face is the problem of ridicule. It's not, just, it's not just rumors like, oh, you know, some people might be unhappy about this. Nehemiah's like, who cares? Well, now he's got ridicule to deal with. People are speaking, not just, not just hushed rumors, they're speaking publicly out against the work. And while I kind of make light of this, right, it kind of sounds funny. You, you, get, you get the gist of it. It's like, oh, they're going to do such a bad job that even a fox could knock over the wall, right? You know, the reality is this is... This is actually pretty serious, and Nehemiah certainly takes this ridicule, this public speaking against the work seriously. Uh, They're speaking evil against not just the work, but they're speaking evil against likely the leaders who are doing the work, the people. It's called slander. It's when you kill someone's character. And then there's gossip involved, and it actually is, you know, people say sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But the reality is words can do an incredible amount of damage. And it's actually beginning to threaten the work 
that they're doing. And often what people will do is they will go not just after, you know, a bad idea in general or an idea they don't like in general, they will actually attack the leader who's attached to it. You know, you might, you might preach a sermon and receive an angry email. I don't know, for example. <laughs> or get a connect card. Or, you know, this is like, this, I, I experienced this. I experienced this. Uh, I've, I've had people, and like people don't kind of realize, like I've had people show up to my office unannounced and cuss me out. I've had, I've had people mysteriously track down my cell phone number, which is not publicly posted on the website, by the way, intentionally, and like text me angry text messages in the middle of the night, you know? And uh, the reality is, when, like, when we, whenever we've gone through seasons where God has been doing, you know, powerful work and there's been breakthrough and fruitfulness in our church, those are the seasons I see an increase in volume of the ridicule or the gossip or the slander. I remember uh, about five years ago, before I was a lead pastor of Hill City Church, I was a campus pastor of a multi-site church, and we went to relaunch the church and to start Hill City. And it was an important work that not just myself, but many of the leaders of that church felt extremely uh, clearly called to do. And in that season, I was accused of, like, my character was accused of, like, nasty. Th- I was accused of causing a church split. It's one of the things I was accused of. Like, you're, you're, you're like, causing a divorce of our churches. And I was like, what? We went through, a, a, three years ago, we merged with Capital City, Hill City Church. We used to be on Bogus Basin Road. We moved 1.8 miles to this building. We merged with Capital City Christian Church. And uh, again, once again, not, not everyone, right? These aren't the things I, like, sell it, like, for vision nights, I usually don't share this kind of stuff, right? This is the real talk. This is the behind the scenes, and we have, to, we have to talk about this kind of stuff. Like, one of the lines that was said to me, which is like, why are you killing our church? That was the line that was said to me. I'm like, murder, divorce, those are like slanderous, right? Slanderous towards me. And I don't say any of that, by the way. This is not like a sob story or like, I've been waiting to preach this sermon. I'm going to let you guys have it, right? This is not to create sympathy or anything like this. What this is to do, what I hope to accomplish with this, is to give you perspective. Because gossip, rumors, and slander only work if people believe it and they spread it. Do you recognize that? And most of those, those negative experiences I'm talking about personally came from church people. Church people, and I think we see a little bit of that in Nehemiah's story as well. Sam Ballot, very likely he's not affiliated with the Jews other than he has a political position in Jerusalem, but Tobiah, his name literally means Yahweh is good, and he's not called Tobiah the Ammonite, he's called Tobiah the Ammonite servant, which means that very likely his heritage is with the Jews, but he's sided with one of their ancient enemies, the Ammonites. And so, like, when Nehemiah starts to hear this, I wonder if he's like, I'd expect that from Sanballat, but from you, Tobiah? From you? Seriously? And so this is the, the reality for us, is I believe that God is calling our church in this, in this new year, in this season, to greater things. And I'm just, just bracing myself for, like, what's it going to be this time? What's the opposition? What's the spiritual attack going to look like this time? And the better prepared we are with a healthy perspective of using our speech as believers, not to tear down, but using our speech to build up, the better we're going to be insulated against the attacks of the enemy. So I want to give a couple of you a single line. You can use this line, not just in the context of people speaking against 
me as a pastor, but whenever someone comes up to you and they're, they're kind of spewing venom on someone, they're, they're slamming someone, that's called gossip. It's when you're talking about someone to someone else who has nothing to do with the situation, they're, and then they're, they're speaking evil. This is a line that you can memorize. I use this line all the time. Have you talked to the person you have a problem with? Here's the beauty behind this line. It's a non-judgmental question. It's a curious question. Have you talked to them? It's actually really easy to answer. Yes or no? Have you talked to the person that you have a problem with? It's not, I think you're gossiping, because what's going to happen if you start pointing the finger at somebody who's venting at you? That's the wrong thing. To, that's a trap, okay? Don't do that. But if you just simply, like, you listen, you're like, okay, it sounds like you're really angry. Have you talked to the person that you have a problem with? And if the answer is no, it's really easy. Well, I really don't feel comfortable talking to you about this until you go to that person and talk to them. And if they have talked to them and they haven't been able to resolve their problem, maybe you could actually be a third party that joins them and you can follow a Matthew 18 process for reconciliation. But if, if, like if we all would use that line, imagine how gossip and rumors, instead of like starting like a wildfire, imagine how those fires would just be squashed before they really do any damage. Very, very important for us. Not just in a season where, where God's going to move, but I think important for Christians, I would say especially American Christians, in this upcoming season. Continuing in the text, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, this is how Nehemiah responds. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Very first response, prayer. Turn, their, turn, uh, turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, and the people had a mind to work. So here what Nehemiah does is he prays about it, and his prayer, you just have to acknowledge, it's a little bit of an angry prayer, okay? Have you ever prayed like that? A little bit of an angry prayer. It's what we call praying against somebody. And you read even prayers in the Psalms like that, and this is one of those moments where we just have to acknowledge, Nehemiah prayed that prayer. Is this an endorsement of praying that way or not? Who's to say, right? It's not necessarily Nehemiah did it, so we must do it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here's what Nehemiah does that's really, really healthy. He doesn't stoop down to their level and return the evil that they're speaking against him and the work. He doesn't return that evil back to them because evil returned for evil means more evil. It's a pretty simple math equation. And we must overcome evil with good. And so what Nehemiah does, he's got some strong feelings. And here's why he has strong feelings, by the way. He's like, you're not just speaking against this rebuilding project. You're not even just speaking against me. He views this as an attack against the very hand of God. Okay? So that's why he's like, Lord, you've got to do something about this, right? And yet, if you must vent, vents only work when the chimney goes which direction? Goes up. So here's a very simple saying. Vent up not out. And oftentimes what we do is we vent, we, we, we let kind of our anger out to anyone who's around us, anyone who's accessible. We vent online, but we don't actually talk upwards to the person who it's affecting or in our prayer life. And Nehemiah is willing to like play it really cool and not return evil for evil because he prays a really vulnerable, honest prayer. And I'm here to encourage you to do that as well. But instead of following Nehemiah's model to pray against his enemies, I would encourage you to take the words of Jesus from Matthew 5:44, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we have a higher level of calling than Nehemiah demonstrates here. 
We are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice, not, not the expectation you'll never have enemies. Jesus is like, well, you're going to have enemies for sure. But you've got to love those people. It's how you treat and interact with your enemies. And you can pray for those who persecute you. And here's what happens to me and my heart whenever I've put this into practice. Someone's coming at me. Someone's speaking against me, that, that sort of thing. And I just, like, on a daily basis, I'm like, Lord, I'm adding them to my prayer list. And I'm going to pray that their marriage would be strong. I'm going to pray for their kids. I'm going to pray for peace over their household, right? You begin to pray for someone. The Holy Spirit uses that to heal your own heart Amen. and to grow compassion for that person. That's how we return evil with good. And then what else does Nehemiah do? He not only prays about it, he just continues to do the work. He's like, well, I guess they're angry about it, and I guess they can make fun of us all they want, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to work. And the, the, the rebuilding effort reaches its halfway through its height. Here's, what, here's what, what's best. Let the work prove its worth, because you cannot convince everyone that you're right. And you shouldn't try, because you're going to waste a lot of your best energy trying to change everyone's opponents, enemies, resistance. You're going to waste a lot of your best energy trying to convince somebody when the best thing that you can do is just continue to pursue what God is calling you to do and let the results speak for themselves. I want to show you a, a picture here. This is from one of our very first vision nights when we were exploring Hill City Church, Capital City Christian Church. We're exploring the merger together. That's me right there. And uh, that's on this stage right here. And you can't really see it a ton in the picture, but that was in the middle of summer, and it was, like, hot. This building did not have air conditioning for over 111 years, need I remind you. And so that was before that. Was before that. And so you have these swamp coolers down front, and there's a fan on me, and they were blasting full blast. And they, they, they only really worked for if you sat, like, in the front row. So it'd be like, good for you guys, but, like, sorry if you're in the balcony, right? And so that was pretty tough. And then if you're in the room, there was, like, you'd look up at the dome, and there'd be, like, plaster that looked like it was about to fall down. And so there was about 30 of us in that room that night. And there was just, like, the very first vision night. I was like, and I was trying my best. Like, the, like I was pulling out my best stuff, okay? It's going to be great, and God is, you know, moving us this way and everything. And there were people on both, from both churches. And people from Capital City were like, I don't know, you guys seem pretty young <laughs> and inexperienced. And your worship style is a little different. And we're just not too sure. We don't really know you. We're not too sure about who you are. And there were people from Hill City Church who were like, we were in a re renovated grocery store. Very dark room, lights, lasers. No, we didn't have lasers, but... Just, it was like a contemporary feel, right? You know what I'm saying? And it was just like, just different, right? We did, like, so the bit, like, it was like, is that stained glass? They still do that? You know, and it was just like, it was different. And man, if I had spent that discernment season trying to convince literally every person who had a problem with the work that God was calling us to, I never would have made it through that season. But I want to show you another picture. This is from Christmas Eve, 2023 got over 400 people in this room. You see those vents right there? The HVAC is functioning. Got an AV. AV is, you know, the, the renovation's done. The building's paid for. Everything's, and most importantly of all, hundreds of people are hearing the gospel. And over 100 people have been baptized in the last few years because of God's faithfulness to the work he wanted to accomplish. Can we celebrate that? And 
And so I'll be the first to give God all the praise, all the glory for the work that has been done. But I'm just here to say, sometimes that's the best thing you can do, is just keep doing the work God has called you to do, and let the work speak for itself. Continuing through the text, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah the, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, so, so they're gathering more opponents, okay, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. So at first they were displeased, then they're angry, now they're very angry, okay? It's escalating. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Problem number three is plotting. Plotting is when it's not just people aren't happy and it's not just even people are speaking evil. Now they're actually planning to disrupt the work that you're doing. They're planning to take you down. And Nehemiah, as we see here, he's got 99 problems, but a healthy prayer life ain't one. Once again, what does he do? Very first thing he does. Every single time, he prays. First problem, pray. Problem, pray. Problem, like that's his pattern. If you don't learn anything else from today, prayer has got to be our first response. But he doesn't only pray. He also sets up a guard. So he's like, oh, we need, we actually, like, if they come to fight against us, if they come to disrupt the work, we should probably be ready for that. So he's not naive. He's not just like, well, I'll just pray about it, fellas, and we'll, you know, show up tomorrow and everything will be fine. He actually sets a guard duty day and night. What this demonstrates is the perfect marriage between faith and action. Or as James talks about it in James chapter 2, faith and works. Look at James 2, 17 and 18. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Strong words. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What James is addressing, what Nehemiah is exemplifying is the idea that it's not enough to just kind of sit aside and say, well, I'm the prayer guy. You do the works, I'm going to do the prayer. He says, we actually demonstrate our faith, that our actions are proof of a biblical faith. Here's how I'll say it. Do what you can do and pray about what only God can do. So if there's situations where you have resistance or there's something that's out of your control, you just have to own it. And you're like, God, I, like, can Nehemiah literally prevent people from attacking them? No. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't do that, but he can pray about it. But then he can be prepared on his side. What does this look like in our lives? It means you've been praying for someone, a neighbor, to, to, to know Jesus, and you drive by their house, and you pray for them, you pray for them, you pray for them. Have you ever invited them over for dinner? Have you ever, have you ever shared your testimony with them, right? You, so that's the, the idea of, like, you demonstrate your faith not only by the prayers that you pray, but by the actions that you take. And so Nehemiah demonstrates this. Well, he's got a couple more problems here. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, and there is too much rubble, and by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Problem number four is burnout. This is hard work. That's the thing about, like, we talk about, like, what is the work that God is calling you to do, or what is the work that God wants to do in you? Well, guess what? Work is work. 
It takes energy. It takes effort. It's tiring. But the difference between burnout and like fatigue or tiredness is what happens is, you know, rebuilding a wall, I, like I've never done this, but I imagine it's, it's like hard. Like stones are heavy. Like I get the concept at least, you know. And, uh, but here's the reality is, you can get by with doing a lot of hard physical work, but the moment that the work stops is when the fatigue and the tiredness is not only external, now it's moved inside of you somehow. And so the people are discouraged, they're hopeless. And they're, the thing is, they're, they're already halfway there, but there's a mile of difference between we're already halfway there and we're only halfway there. It's like, a, is the wall half full or half empty situation, right? And, and these people are starting to be, to be discouraged. And in chapter 5, we learn about there's problems happening behind the scenes. Just to give you a bit of perspective here, that be, because these, these workers, they're not like professional stonemasons. They're not professional wall builders. They're, most of them are farmers. And every day they show up to work on the wall, where are they not working? They're not working in the field. And if they're not working in the field, how are they getting food? There's no Walmart, right? And so their families are actually going hungry. And so think about the impact, the implication that this would have on the family dynamic. And, and wives are at home, like, why are you doing this work? And why are you going out there? And there are, there's even reports that they're selling some of their children into slavery because they're in such poverty. And there, there's some other dynamics behind the scenes where there's oppression from the leaders of the city and they're taxing them and do all the sort of, you know, kind of corrupt dealings and that sort of thing. But essentially imagine the, the marital conflict when you go home from work after a really long day and you're afraid for your life and you get home and then like there's no food and everyone's hungry and it's like, well, why don't you get a real job? Can you imagine? Have you had a fight like that? And that's, that's when the burnout becomes real where it's not just like, oh, I got to rest up tonight because I've got a, you know, a big day tomorrow. It's like you go home and you're discouraged and you're hopeless and you're fighting and you go to work and you might die. And it's really hard work, by the way, you know? And so you see that they're, they're, they're stuck in this place. And so what happens with the burnout is that the fatigue is getting into their souls. That can happen when we set out to do the work that God calls us to. And then problem number five is there's, there is literally the external opposition of there's threats now. This isn't just like we've heard rumors, we need to be prepared for anything. There's actual threats where it's like people are packing their lunch, they're on their way to work, and they, someone like, st- like the mafia type idea. It's like, you, you sh- if you show up to work, I'll kill you. That's what they're saying. There's actual threats, fear for their life. And I pray that n- no one in this room ever has to face anything close to this, but we just have to acknowledge that many believers around the world still live in persecuted places. That they actually face these, this crossroads of decision. Am I going to be faithful to God or am I going to lose my life? And it seems like they're at this crossroads where daily they have to ask this question. But for you, I would just pose this question for you. You're going to have to choose between your safety, your comfort, your ease, and God's calling at times. And which will you choose? Will you choose to be faithful even if it's difficult? Even if it doesn't make you as successful, even if it doesn't make you as popular, because the reality is Jesus invites us to follow him into self-denial, service, and sacrifice in a way that can only be characterized by his line, take up your cross and follow me. And so Nehemiah has his work cut out for him. He's got the workforce, which is extremely discouraged. He's got actual threats seemingly surrounding him on all sides. How will he lead through this opposition. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13, 
So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, here's his vision, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It's a masterclass in vision. He says, man, I, I know we've got opponents. I know they've got weapons. I know everything. But do you remember our God? This is the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who brought down the walls of Jericho, the same God who's rained fire down from heaven. Do you remember God's strength and his power and how God is the one who called us to this work and how God has blessed this work and how God has got us halfway through this work? Remember our God, he says. That's vision. But then notice what else he says. He says, remember your brothers and your wives and your sons and your daughters. He says, remember your homes. Now you can imagine the pushback here. They're like, we are thinking about our homes and we're thinking about the grocery bill and we're thinking about the difficulty, our sons and daughters who are being sold into slavery. But what Nehemiah is doing, he's, he's getting people to not just think about the own, their own personal cost of the work God calls them to. He's wanting them to think about their legacy. He's like, no, think about our home, Jerusalem. The walls have been in ruins for 141 years. What kind of legacy do you want your sons and daughters to grow up in? What about the generation coming up after us? See, here's what Nehemiah does. He reminds them, this is very important for us, that the work you do is about more than you. The work that you're doing for God is about more than you. Your marriage and the work God wants you to do to heal your marriage, guess what? It's not even primarily about you and your satisfaction in marriage. It's that your marriage would be a, a tool that God uses to show the gospel to the world. Your children, like we ask the question, like how many kids do you want to have and how fulfilling, do you, like it's like, well, what about spreading God's, the gospel and the kingdom from generation to generation? And parenting is not primarily about you and, and feeling good of having a family. What if it's primarily about God's kingdom being shared generation after generation? Think about the work that, that you're doing is not primarily even about you. It's about God's kingdom and his glory. And Nehemiah poses this very important question. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave when, you're, when you part from this earth? Masterclass and vision. And what Nehemiah does is he gets people stationed. This is in chapter 3. He stations them across the street as much as possible from their actual home. So that think about that. From, from the day that they were born, they lived in this broken down city. And they're seeing these walls and they... they become accustomed to them. But now they're on the other side looking at their homes and they can see their kids playing in the street. They can see their families. They can see their house. And now he's, he's saying you've got to connect the vision because the most important work, I would argue the most important work perhaps that you ever do for God's kingdom, it might take place in your very home. The most important work that you might ever do for God's kingdom, it might be in your neighborhood with your neighbors right now. And we're, we're kind of waiting, God, what's the work you want me to do? Do you want me to buy a plane ticket and go across the world? Well, maybe God's calling someone in this room to do something like that. But what about tomorrow morning? What's the work that God has for you? That's your legacy. How you live every single day seeking first the kingdom of heaven. So Nehemiah says, so tomorrow, I don't want anyone calling in a sick day. Tomorrow you're showing up to work and you're bringing a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other because we're going to get this wall finished. Now, Nehemiah encounters, like I said, a bunch of other problems. You can read about it on your own. In chapter 5, 
faces problems in chapter 6. People, nothing's working, and so his enemies try to blackmail him, and they're like, we're going to send a letter to King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah's like, I know that guy. He'll never buy it, right? And so the blackmail doesn't work, and they hire a false prophet who's like, people are coming to kill you. Ah. And he's like speaking this, prophet, this false prophecy against him. He's like, you got to go in the temple. But Nehemiah knows his Old Testament law, and he's like, I'm not supposed to go to that part of the temple. I'll be, I'll be breaking the law of Moses. You're trying to make me break the law, aren't you? And the prophet's like, ah, you know, he's like, doesn't know what to do. And so he faces all these problems all the way through. It's like nonstop through the work. And in chapter 6, verse, verses 6, or verse 9, this is what it says. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. That's the goal of the enemy, to keep you from doing the work that God has for you. But then he prays, once again, the simple prayer, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And they, the people strengthen their hands at the very beginning in chapter 2 before they got to work. But it's a lot easier to start with energy, isn't it? To start strong than it is to stay strong or finish strong. And Nehemiah, it's, you can tell as a leader, it's starting to get to him a little bit. This is a vulnerable prayer. God, it's so hard. I want, it, I want to finish it. I want to do what you've called me to do. But it's just starting to chip away at him. And so he does the best thing he can do in this moment. He drops to his knees and prays a simple prayer. Maybe you would memorize this prayer. But now, O oh Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Maybe that needs to be your prayer this week. And the, the good news of the gospel is that God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And then in, in verse 15 and 16, this is what ends up happening. It says this, So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. 52 days. Can somebody say 52? 52. 50. It seems like everything we talked about is a lot more than 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The walls that lay in ruins for over a century, 141 years have passed since the army of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar tore down and burned these walls to, to rubble. They lay in ruins for 141 years. And it, I would say it only took 52 days? What were they doing for over a century? 52 days. God was waiting for a single leader like Nehemiah to raise his hand and say, I'll do it. I'll do the work. I'll do whatever you call me to do. And as much as that 50, is that 52 days an easy 52 days? No, it's very hard. Felt like 52 weeks, maybe 52 years. I don't know how much gray hair he had going into the work, but he had more on the way out, right? And yet, I just want to ask you this question. What could God do in your life in 52 days? From today, just mark your calendar. If you were to wake up every single day for the next 52 days and say, God, whatever you want from me, I'll do. Whatever you want to do in me, I'll do. What if for 52 days you dedicated yourself to prayer and fasting? What if for 52 days you relied on God's strength? What if you listened to the Holy Spirit for 52 days? This, imagine the work that God would accomplish in his people and through his people for the sake of his kingdom. See, the work that is set before us, it might seem impossible to us, but I'm here to tell you that nothing is impossible with God. Amen?
Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.